And that's what this is, yeah. <laughs> dude. Like, it's just such a crazy story to be, man. Like, I honestly can't believe they did it. And this is an international program, right? With hundreds of thousands of kids across the globe participating. So this is wild, man. I, I was completely shocked by this story. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This is my 17th year in the classroom. And this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this is the first episode you've ever listened to or watched, we hope you enjoy what you hear and that you go ahead and hit that subscribe button and follow button and all of that. But um, if you've been here before, man, we ju we're just so appreciative of you supporting our show. Jeff, I feel like our viewers are like elite. Like the folks that listen to this show, just like we have a streak of only having dope guests on the show, I am very confident that all of our audience members are dope educators or dope people who care about education. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I can't disagree with any of that. Man. Well, I think the, the phrase you're looking for is uh, cream, cream of the crop. Yes. Creme, creme de la creme, yes. as they say. Nice. Uh, it is, I mean, it's an incredible community of people, right? What, what can we say? And it's, it's just so fun to interact with folks on Twitter, on Facebook, um, you know, to read folks' comments, to read their reviews. It's, uh, it's just gratifying. So, yeah, man, we, we see you out there. We appreciate you, AOTA family. Yes, for sure. We appreciate and love the AOTA family. And we, we hope you continue to enjoy these topics that we uh, explore on the show related to the world of education. Myself speaking from the perspective of a classroom teacher mostly, and um, Jeff, of course, speaking from the perspective of um, Mr. Administrator, Mr. Principal Leader Man um, <laughs> with those those big fancy titles and all that. And um, Wow, yeah. wow. Hey, 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 what could I say? What could I say? You know, the, the real teachers <laughs> in the building, they know what's up. We, we know that we are the... Uh, the uh, the heart of our of our education system. So shout out to all you teachers who might be listening and and all of that. So Jeff, all right, there there's a lot going on. And our last few episodes, we we explored a lot a, a range of topics. I mean, we've talked about anti-racism through math classes. We've talked about uh, English language arts and anti-racism and, and decentering whiteness. And we are soon going to explore the sciences and how science classes can can sort of grapple with these issues of race and racism. But we thought we might take a little bit of a break for this episode because there's so many headlines in our world of education. Jeff, talk to us. What's what's on the agenda for today? Well, Manuel, I think we got a good one for folks. And frankly, it's a little bit of a special episode because it's been a while, man, since we've since we, you know, since the world was turned upside down, right, with uh, the pandemic mm. and Is that a the Hamilton closure reference? of school. That um, I you haven't you know, seen it I enough only, times to know that yeah. it, it yeah, is a I Hamilton reference. Okay, um, fair enough. It has become one. <laughs> I will, I've declared it. I, I will trust you on that. Um, I did watch the. I watched it on on Netflix though, so I, I can Netflix. at least say that. But uh, Disney Plus. Was Jeff. it on Netflix? Oh, Disney Get Plus. Get your streaming sorry, services man. right, man. 
You know, it's all in the same little box by the TV. Man. True. It's just, you know, it's just one corporation on the back end anyway. So, <laughs> <That> uh, <laughs> but um, all that said, yes, we have a special episode for folks today because since everything changed in our profession, we have um, we have had an incredible slate of guests come to join us. Today's episode is special because you're getting uh, just a, an intimate time with your two favorite AOTA hosts, Dr. Manuel Rustin and Jeffrey Garrett. It's just the two of us today um, exploring a few more headlines than we would normally explore in a, in a typical episode because there's just so much fascinating stuff happening, Manuel, that we, that we need to dig into. So, um, you know, buckle your seatbelts, thinking caps on, folks, and uh, we're going to get ready to explore some headlines with uh, yours truly here, um, your favorite hosts of all the above. Yeah, absolutely. We we have a headline related to um, the robot apocalypse and grading. So you definitely want to uh, stay tuned. <laughs> exactly. A lot has gone on that I think a lot of educators, since we've been so busy preparing for this dis distance learning pandemic teaching thing that, you know, I think there's a lot of stories that folks just were unaware of. And, and we have at least a, a few of those today that I didn't know about until, of course, prepping for the show. So you definitely want to stay tuned, all right? So up next is a special All the Above Do Now segment where we will take a look at several headlines going on in our world of education. Stay tuned. What up, AOTA family? If you are listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, we would very much appreciate it if you scroll down to the bottom and leave us a five-star rating. And when you have time, if you write us a little review, we would love that. In fact, if you write a review for us and screenshot it and send it to us, we will send you back an AOTA show sticker for your laptop or your notebook or wherever you put your stickers, all right? So write us a quick review, screenshot it, send it to us over Twitter or Facebook or wherever, and we will send you back an AOTA show sticker. We love y'all. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, now it's time for the Do Now where we take a look at headlines in the world of education. And today we are gonna look at a, um, a, a chunky amount of headlines because there's so much going on. So we're gonna extend today's Do Now for sure. Hopefully that's all right with you, Jeff. Um, extended Do Now, how are we gonna do it? What do you think? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I think we have so many fascinating things to talk about. This is like one of the craziest times in the history of our profession. So it's, uh, it's only right that we're spending some time with a few of these juicy headlines today. And to help us do that, we're going to break out um, our lexicon and we'll talk about some key terms, bring some knowledge and vocabulary to the people. Yeah, lexicon. Let's get this vocab straight. All right. Jeff, the first term for today is blah. Blah. I mean, I appreciate the word blah. It's kind of like, it's like one of those sounds that's not really a word, but we use it like a word because it helps convey a meaning that you wish we had a word for. Like, you know, it's just blah. I appreciate yeah. it, man. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, and I've been using that word a lot lately. Uh, to s describe my my feelings for this online learning pandemic teaching school year. And that's perfect because Ed Week did a survey of teachers recently, and I found out that I'm not the only one that's feeling kind of blah about this school year. All right, so so let's get into it. Holly Kurtz and the Ed Week 
Research Center um, presented results from this survey, this really fascinating survey that was given uh, towards the end of August. All right, so this nationally represented representative online survey of 826 K-12 educators was given between uh, August 26 and August 28. So relatively recently, um, this is a time where many educators have already gone back to school at that point. And the survey included results from 415 teachers, 149 principals, and 262 district level administrators. And some of the findings that stood out from this survey uh, related to teacher morale and teacher teachers resigning. All right, so this survey found that 31% of teachers and district leaders say that teacher morale is quote unquote, much lower than it was prior to the pandemic. 32% of teachers are reporting that they are likely to leave their jobs this year, even though they would have been unlikely to do so prior to the pandemic. And that's up from 26% who said so in July and only 12% who said so at the end of May. All right, so this is definitely trending in the wrong direction in terms of teachers feeling good about staying in the classroom. The survey also found that more than half of school and district leaders say that the pandemic has led to declines in enrollment in preschool, kindergarten, and grades one through five. Close to half say the same for secondary grades. And those pods that were like the talk of the summer, those those um, pods where parents were apparently conspiring to, to hire a teacher privately and, and have multiple students from different families together in this learning pod separate from the school system. The survey found that just 8% of teachers, principals, and district leaders said that they have actually personally interacted with at least one parent in their district who plans to make this approach. And only 5% said that they're at least somewhat concerned about losing enrollment to pods. So it looks like the pods discussion perhaps maybe was um, a little overblown or didn't quite come to fruition. And um, lastly, something that really jumped out at me, Jeff, is, is the question of what to do when a student does test positive. Because of course, many schools across the nation are open for in-person learning. And the survey found that 23% of district leaders and principals say that they won't tell parents about COVID-19 cases in their schools unless they believe a parent needs to know because their son or daughter was directly exposed. So Jeff, um, lots lots of data in this, this survey, lots to talk about. Uh, what, are, what are some of your thoughts? Yeah, man, well, I mean, there, there's just so much uh, in this piece from Edweek. I'm, I'm really glad that they are gathering this kind of data. My only wish is that it was more broadly publicly available, you know, not, not behind the paywall. Um, because there's just so much in there. So I guess my, my first reaction is around the kind of like lower teacher morale and the, the potential threat to the profession that we face because, you know, the job is incredibly rigorous and complex and challenging as it was like pre-corona. You know, I know there's the stereotype out there, like those who, you know, those who do, do, and those who can't teach, uh, which is like, you know, cute in a movie or something like that. But anybody who's ever tried to be a teacher, uh, you know, uh, has no sense of humor about that, right? Um, and so right. that was before the pandemic. Now it is just orders of magnitude more complex. And doing that work in a situation that is, even more complex than it was before, right? And so, uh, so my real worry, and I, and I, I would love to see. I, I haven't seen 
real data crunched on this, you know, on sort of a statewide level or, or larger scale. Um, but I'm honestly worried about like, are we potentially, if this drags on, right, the failed response that we've had to the pandemic, the likelihood of schools that are currently doing distance learning having to continue distance learning for, you know, at least the first half of the year, likely in my mind for the, at least the entirety of this school year, potentially longer, right, continuing this until we have a vaccine, right? And then even if you go back, most places around the country are doing some kind of hybrid model, right? And, you know, the right. jury's out right now as to whether that hybrid model is like sustainable for teachers, actually produces, you know, the same type of like benefits and feelings of professional satisfaction that folks get from regular school, right? Which is connection with the kids and seeing growth and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I'm really worried about if this continues and we have a profession that's got increasingly low morale, are folks going to simply leave? Are folks going to retire early? Are folks going to take other kinds of jobs? Are folks going to, who have the means, just simply stop teaching and, you know, stay home and take care of their kids and the family will just adjust and, you know, reduce to one income or something of that nature? So I think there's a very real question in there for us about, like, what are we going to do to retain teachers in this in this environment, and um, and I, I hope that our policymakers are starting to think about that um, because you know this is a time when we we need teachers right even more than ever um, and are are potentially facing you know significant losses of folks and maybe even significant losses throughout the course of the year right like you know if you're I know of a few cases where teachers who are pretty senior in there you know, in their career and be like, look, man, this is hard. This is crazy. I'm not enjoying this. And they retired over the summer unexpectedly. Right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, schools could be looking at mid-year vacancies that they have to fill. Right. Um, which is not good for anyone. Right. So that's where my mind goes immediately. It's kind of like, uh oh, you know, I'm, I'm worried about kind of the integrity of the profession in that regard. Um, and I'm hoping that we, from a policy perspective, can bring to bear some things that are also taking into account the fact that folks have really hard jobs right now and need support, need, you know, need to be taken care of, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All of that. And like I said a few episodes ago when uh, Jose Wilson mentioned that he was going to enroll full-time in graduate school, and I said something about it. It always makes me a little bit sad when uh, a quality teacher decides to leave the classroom, whether for good, you know, great reasons or not. It always, you know, part of me gets a little sad because I just love, I love the classroom, and I love the idea of students having quality teachers in front of them. So when I hear that 32% of teachers are considering resignation or retirement who weren't considering that before, you know, of course, not all of them are, like, great teachers, but enough of them are to really, really, really make me sad about the situation. I would be lying if I said that like distance learning has been going fantastic. It's been going better than I expected. But the reason why today's lexicon term for this story is blah is because that like best encapsulates how I feel about this whole situation because students are logging in, yes, and students are definitely giving me life, being able to see them and interact with them for sure. I love that part of it and our attendance has been great. Students have been with us, but it's just not the same. Like it's just not the same. And to have these, these online interactions, it just doesn't come close to the feel of the classroom. It does not resemble at all what I love about teaching. And I would be lying to you. I mean, let me let me just be honest. I mean, we're 
AOTA family here. Everybody listening is part of the AOTA family, so I know you're not going to go out and tell anybody, but there was a, a, a moment a few weeks ago where I realized for the first time in my career that if somebody came calling with an offer that was away from the classroom that like matched where I'm at right now in terms of salary and benefits and all that and security and all that, like I would take it because this is something, this distance learning and pandemic teaching year is one that honestly, like I am, I, this, this is not what I got in the profession for. I for sure would consider going somewhere else if something else came along. Not now, because obviously, you know, I'm a couple weeks into the school year, I'm not going to leave students high and dry for sure. But like, yeah, this is, this is difficult. And, you know, it's nobody's fault besides the fact that our nation had a terrible response to the pandemic. You know, I wish we could be in a better place now, but just to be like perfectly honest, like my, my mother lives in Spain. I talked to her about schools out there. It really sounds like something similar is going on out there with regards to the fear over students getting back together in these buildings and whether or not uh, the schools are prepared and have adequate resources to ensure that everything's safe and sanitized and all that good stuff. And the numbers aren't trending in the right direction right now, at least as at the time of this recording, in a lot of those countries that were doing really well. So, you know, I, I definitely like everybody else, I definitely agree that our nation handled this terribly. But even if we did handle it really, really, really well, we'd still be in a mess. Like this, this is still a very real, very real um, virus that's out there. So this is tough, man. Yeah. This is tough. And these numbers, I guess for me, give me some comfort in knowing that it's not just me. There are, there's definitely parts of me that are like, man, I wonder if other teachers are struggling like I'm struggling or feeling like I'm feeling because like the class sessions will, will go fine or it seems like students are enjoying it. But still, like at the end, I'm just like, man, was this even worth it? Like, is this like, you know, am I, am I doing right by the kids? And to see that a lot of teachers are feeling the same way gives me a little bit of comfort because, you know, obviously part of being a teacher is always second guessing yourself and thinking like, oh man, I'm terrible at this, but I'm just playing the part until someone discovers it. Um, so there's some comfort in knowing that other teachers are also feeling kind of uh, not great about this, but yeah, man, it's just blah, blah. And I'm hoping, hoping, hoping that at some point we could get past this. But even that hybrid learning situation that you referenced, a lot of the teachers that I've been able to, you know, see, you know, share their experiences online are doing the hybrid teaching. And it sounds like it's equally, if not more, like stressful and chaotic and just disappointing as this full online teaching that that we're doing in my district. So yeah, blah. All I can say is I hope we all hang in there and I hope that this, you know, gets this, that we get past this sooner rather than later before, uh, to your point, before we lose waves of teachers and really have to deal with a serious shortage. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that, man. And I'm, I'm with you. I, I do. There is part of me that, that is like holding out some kind of hope, right? That like we're early in this. It's just a few weeks into the school year, you know, out here in California, in other parts of the country, literally the school year just is starting this week, right? And in, in a few places in the country, the school year isn't even really yet starting this week. It doesn't really start until next week or later this month. So, you right. know, so there's, we're at the beginning of this kind of new normal, right? And we will learn and we will grow and we will get better. And I hope that, you know, in part of that process, there can, there can be some reclaiming of some of the joy and reclaiming of some of the stuff that makes school a great place to be for kids and adults alike, right? Um, which is the sense of community, the sense of, you know, belonging, purpose, relationship, 
all of that. Um, but there, there was one other aspect of this story, Manuel, I, I thought we should touch on before we move to our next story, which is... Them hiding positive tests? I hope it's that, because <laughs> I definitely have a reaction to the fact that they're not going to notify parents about positive tests in their schools. Yeah, well, well, maybe there's two parts of this story. <laughs> we should talk about that, because what, what really jumps out to me also is, I mean, that, yes, that part is crazy, too. But... Um, what I, what I think it's worth naming right now is that across the country, we're seeing significant declines in enrollment in public school at the early grade levels, right? Pre-K, kinder, um, you know, the, the earliest grades. And I think that is, you know, kind of the jury's out, right, as to what that really means at this point. Is this a situation where these are the youngest kids who, you know, already have the most sort of like home care arrangements set up and families are just like opting out of enrolling and going to enroll the kids next year or you know in in a way that some families make that decision for their child anyways right to hold their kid back right. a year or that sort of thing and maybe it's not an indication of say like loss of faith in the in the institution of school or something of that nature right but if you project this ahead right if we're seeing like you know, potentially double-digit declines in enrollment at the kindergarten level, if that actually continues in any type of way up through the grades, right, if that has any legs over time, then we could potentially start seeing like a really destabilizing impact um, because uh, as folks, I hope, know, as enrollment declines, so do school budgets, right? And as school budgets go down, programs get cut, staff, you know, teachers, out-of-classroom staff positions get cut. Um, and with those things, right, programs and, and people go the things that make school exciting, right? The things that make school a good place to be. That, that We'd be talking about laying off our youngest uh, teachers, right? Cutting ourselves off at the knees in terms of our profession. So, you know, it's too early for like a doom and gloom uh, prognostication on that front, but it's certainly not too early to be saying like, hmm, what is happening here? And, you know, what, if any, movement can we see on this front to, to engage or re-engage those families of our youngest students so that we don't see some negative consequences down the road? Yeah, no, absolutely. And also, if I were a parent, I would be livid if the school that my kid goes to has positive cases and they didn't notify me because my kid happened not to be in that exact same classroom. Nah, I want to know. Don't hide any positives. So those 23% of administrators or district leaders that said they won't notify parents unless it's their their kid was in direct proximity to that kid. I, I mean, I assume they, that their reasoning for that is so they don't want to cause a panic and have like have to have the school not show up the next day. That sounds familiar, though. I, I seem to recall a a world leader also <laughs> downplaying something supposedly <sighs> to not cause a panic. And we see what good that did. So, no, if there are positive tests at your school, you need to notify everybody and let the parents decide if, well, it wasn't, you know, my kid wasn't in that same part of campus. So, you know, whatever, whatever. But don't hide it. And that makes me think of these college football programs that so far have been there's been a few coaches who've said that you know they don't plan to make public any positive tests to the media or whatever and it's like i i see what you're doing you don't want folks to rightfully say you got to shut this down um we need to not hide information at this time i know that much and of course there's like medical privacy all that stuff but i'm 
I doubt these principals are talking about keeping the the identity of the students uh, secure. I think it's more about like just not wanting people to know because I don't want people on my back about um, we're not doing enough or we need to shut this joint down. So yeah, it's trash. That yeah, that's trash. I don't know what your thoughts are as as, a, as an administrator on that, but come on, man. Like you can't just keep people in the dark. Not at this time. Yeah, I'd be su- not I ever, would be especially this time. I would be super surprised if that type of policy could withstand any type of legal challenge. Frankly. Um, now there are certainly privacy issues to be, you know, uh, to be considered, right? Because sharing right. one student's medical records, which are private, to you know ensure the protection of others, does kind of put the rights of two different camps of people in conflict with one another, right? But there are all kinds of ways the school districts manage this across the country where they share information about lice or they share information about chickenpox or other kinds of things that protects privacy and also equips families with with information they need. So I would be super surprised if at the first, you know, the first legal challenge to this, these these type of policies fail. Also, I just want to be careful to point out that I, I can't imagine anywhere that it's actually a principal that's making this decision and not a district. Oh, uh, look at you not trying to defend your Well, I gotta step I gotta folks. step up for the principals, man. Like these are not principal decisions, <laughs> man. Maybe in a district where there's just one school and like the principal is the superintendent, you could make that right. argument. But these are definitely like policies coming out of the district office that the lawyer and risk management folks have looked at, Fair. you know what I mean? And principals may, if, if they have to do that, if they have to abide by that type of policy, their hands may be tied. Um, but I, I also would have a hard time thinking that any principal would ethically and responsibly look at the situation and be like, yeah, we need to brush that under the rug uh, <laughs> and not yeah. tell anyone, right? Um, you know, that's, uh, All right. that's, yeah. Stand up for your peoples, man. Stand That's up for right, your peoples. Man. I, I see good. you out there, hardworking principals. <laughs> yeah, yes. man, they ain't listening. Them, it, any hardworking principal that's listening to this, they're probably hearing this like three, four months from now because as busy as they are at this time of year with all that's going on, uh, obviously, if you are taking the time out to listen to this podcast and you are a school principal and you're you're hearing it within the first week of it coming out, shout out to you for making space for all of the above. Indeed. And we definitely see you. We know these are crazy, crazy times to be a principal for sure. All right. All right, Jeff. I think we have some some other stories to talk about. I think we have some other terms for our lexicon today. So what's next? All right, Manuel. Next up in our lexicon is the term tilting. That's fancy. So the last story I went with blah because like, you know, blah. But now you're over here bringing um, actual, some actual terminology here, Jeff. I need you to break that down. <laughs> yes, tilting, Manuel, as in um, what the thousands of students across California and other parts of the country who are continuing to take the SAT and the mm. ACT in an effort to tilt the odds of college admission in their favor. It is what they are doing by continuing to seek out these exams, even though most schools across the country have said we no longer require them, or in some cases, like here in California, they won't even look at them at all. So, tilting. Um, and here we go, man. Well, this story is fascinating. Comes to us from Larry Gordon and Ed Source, who did some uh, some good reporting here. And um, 
He is letting us know that there are many high school seniors scrambling to schedule SAT and ACT tests this fall, even though, as I said, most private and public colleges, including both of California's massive state university systems, the University of California and the Cal State system, um, have said they, they are not required during the pandemic. Now, although some of the UCs had, had previously um, uh, already made the decision that they would not consider uh, test scores or that those scores would be optional, earlier this month, a Superior Court judge in Alameda County, which is up in the Bay Area, um, uh, ruled in response to a federal lawsuit filed on behalf of students with disabilities um, that uh, the UC campuses were prevented from considering SAT and ACT results at all, right? So even in this landscape, um, we are seeing uh, students continue to pursue opportunities to take the test. Now, these tests are especially um, needed by students who are planning to apply to the minority of schools across the country who still do require scores. Those in many cases being some of the more selective private colleges or state systems in some states where they, they have not opted out of them. Um, and those students are awaiting testing agencies' decisions on when and where to hold exams um, or on their local authorities' ruling on whether to allow the exams to be held. Of course, typically these exams are taken at, you know, in a big auditorium at a school or in a testing center, which is a, a large group gathering in a confined indoor space, right, which obviously has big public health implications right now. Now, so far in August and September, uh, many testing sites have remained closed throughout the state of California and elsewhere, um, although some limiting test limited testing continues around the country. Um, about half of the test centers nationally um, that were originally expected to host SAT testing on August 29th did not open, according to the college board. Um, so we are seeing, Manuel, a real shifting landscape here around standardized testing, but then perhaps also a subset of students aggressively still pursuing, you know, the, the quote unquote opportunity to take these tests to kind of stack the deck in their favor for fancy schools, you know, uh, private schools and competitive colleges across the country. So, Manuel, I'm very curious, what say you about the tilting of the odds that is happening uh, here in our beloved state of California? Yeah, well, you, I think, use the phrase shifting landscape, and I am rooting for a full-on mudslide to sweep these tests out of our, our, our sphere of education, because you know how I feel about these tests um, during normal times, which are long gone, and who knows if we'll ever be in a spot again where we can say, hey, these are normal times. But during normal times, pre-COVID times, um, we already know that these tests were more accurate predictors of students' income and parents' education level than they were student actual um, success. And of course, we've, we've debated that before, and there's different measure, different ways you could look at it, but by and large, these tests tend to correlate for sure with income and parents' education level. Now, when you add the pandemic to it, and you add the fact that not everybody, not every student is living in a place, in a community that can safely offer in-person tests, now you're just adding to the inequity for sure. Because if half of the test centers didn't end up opening, 
we can go ahead and assume the half that didn't open are the half that are in counties that wouldn't allow them to open. And we already know that COVID and, and COVID cases are um, definitely impacting black and brown communities more than others. So the ones that did open, I assume are in areas with lower case rates or in areas that haven't shuttered as much as, as the rest of the city or the rest of the state or whatever. And those students are, are able to go and test and those students might not be feeling the effects of this pandemic to the same level as students that might be in an in a urban area that's been heavily impacted by COVID. So you are taking something that already is inequitable and adding layers to it to make it even worse. And for all the schools saying like, oh, well, test optional, you don't need it. Yeah, that's great. But we know what students are going to be the ones self-reporting their scores. So if I'm a student and I have the option of self-reporting my score, and in my particular county, COVID hasn't hit nearly as hard, and I'm sitting here chilling, and I get to go in and take this test with you know a clear mind and score well, boom, I just elevated my application over somebody else, despite whatever these colleges might be saying. So that's just grossly unfair. Obviously, I teach in a community um, that's part of LA County, and LA County has shut down very heavily as compared to like Orange County, um, let's say, and my students are primarily black and brown, marginalized community, and for sure, my students are not gonna be able to just go into a testing center and take these tests. So if my students don't have the option of reporting their scores, it, it just hurts me to know as a classroom teacher that they're going to be up against students from communities where they were able to take the test and they were able to go in there and not worry so much about the fact that their families might be essential workers and all this. And it just it's just trash. Like, it's just complete trash. And shout out to Jen the Tutor on Twitter, who definitely has been advocating very heavily um, against this idea of test optional. Like if I don't. I don't want to test around. Period. Obviously, I've said that plenty of times. But also, if <laughs> tell them why you mad, students, man. Well, tell them why you mad, <laughs> man. So if you're gonna allow some students to take it and some not, that's just that's just even worse. Like throw like either everybody gets to take it or nobody gets to take it. Like just let's not even play around with this idea of like oh you know we'll we'll let them self report, but it's not gonna you know unfairly give them an advantage or boost. Like get out of here with all that. I'm ready to see these tests just be gone. And those online versions that they were talking about, like, I don't know if you remember, Jeff, they were talking about doing online versions of the SAT. Yeah. We already know that's going to be like just a disaster based on the AP testing fiasco of the spring. And we also already know that um, online access, internet access, which should be a human right in 2020, given the necessity of the internet, um, we already know it's there's still families out there using slow hotspots when they could find them or doing their work in the parking lot of some you know, some fast food restaurant or something that might have free Wi-Fi. Yeah, this is whack. Yeah. Whack, Jeff. Yeah, it's riddled with problems, Manuel. And I will say, as a as a former government teacher and you as a as a social science teacher yourself, I you know, I, I wonder if you've been thinking about this, but I will tell you, never before in my life have I more frequently thought of the fact that we have typically taught about federalism in our social studies curriculum, uh, curriculum as like this kind of cool, interesting aspect of American society. And I think we are living through a, a just sort of very concretely plain and obvious 
uh, historical moment when our federal system is actually a stupid way of doing things, right? <laughs> like it is a stupid way of organizing a college and you know an educational system, let's say, to have 50 different, you know, and that's just the states, right? That's not even DC yeah. and the territories, right? But 50 several uh, odd systems of doing school across the country, right? That then have to intersect with entities like the College Board and entities, entities like the NCAA, and then all of the various state uh, university systems across the country, right? And you wind up with this patchwork set of policies that on a certain level justifies like, well, if some state systems or some universities are going to require the test, then we can't not offer the tests, right? Um, <laughs> uh, but then at the same time, other states are being forced from court injunctions, you know, to, to not yeah. consider the test, right? We, we just have this horribly un, unleveled playing field. And I'm with you. Like, I, it should be an all or nothing proposition. They, they are, um, at this point, still working on developing online versions of SAT and ACT, but those will not be ready in time for, the, uh, for this year's high school seniors to take and, and have um, you know, completed in time for consideration in their applications this fall. So, you know, maybe a year from now, we're, you know, depending on where we are with the pandemic and school, we'll be in a different situation. But the reality is like, this is a stupid freaking mess that we don't need to be <laughs> in right now. And I think, you know, it, it sounds nice that these tests you could take and it will just help you. But I think the, the, you know, the real like proof is going to be in the pudding on that one, right? The onus is going to be on universities to live up to that commitment and to make sure that their policy is not putting uh, undue you know, equity barriers in the way of low-income students, rural students, students of color, right? Um, students who don't have alumni as parents and that sort of thing to be competitive applicants in a highly, highly competitive uh, you know, uh, college application process across this country, right? And so I'm, I'm going to read uh, Stanford University, right? One of the premier institutions in the country said... Ooh, um, Stanford. Nobody <laughs> likes Stanford, Jeff, but go ahead. Uh, you know, that, that other school across the Bay. Uh, so uh, Stanford uh, said um, the decision about whether to submit scores is, quote, in the hands of the applicant. If you have already taken the ACT or SAT and you feel that your scores are a positive reflection of your academic preparedness, then you are welcome to self-report them. Your application will not be a, at a disadvantage if you choose not to report your scores, right, end quote. So um, they have some real work to do to live up to that. And so does every yeah. college and university across the country who's making a similar commitment because I can just see like subtle ways in which, you know, what's going to happen is this is going to privilege the most privileged, right? When there's a tiebreaker, your privilege is going to be able to express itself because as one student who was named in this article could drive to Vegas with their family and take the test in another state where they're offering the test, right? But if right. you're just like a kid and your family has no car, you live in the hood in LA, like what are you going to do, right? So... Uh, yeah, this, this is a mess. It doesn't need to be a mess. We can do this better. And I hope, I hope that universities are really the keepers of the flame on fairness and equity when it comes to considering these scores or not considering these scores. Amen, for sure. 
All right, Jeff, our next lexicon term for today. I'm curious if you've heard this term before or if you're familiar with this term. I would venture to guess that you are because you are probably one of the most intelligent, articulate people that I know and your vocab is super strong and I try to keep up. I try my best. I hope, I hope our ALTA family appreciates me trying to keep up, but um, we'll see. The term here is techno chauvinism. Mm. Well, uh, Dr. Manuel Rustin, um, <laughs> I have to say that was a new term for me uh, before I encountered this article. I mean, I, I think I could piece together uh, what it means, but uh, I hadn't heard that one before. It's a, it's a good one, though. It's a little, you know, little tongue twister, so to speak, but uh, techno chauvinism. I'm not mad at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, techno chauvinism means, or it's the idea that technological solutions are superior. Um, I would say probably a, a synonym for that would be something along the lines of like a robot apocalypse because that's what <laughs> always happens when we trust in technology to be the superior um, pathway for us. At least that's what happens in film and and in stories. And and it's just only a matter of time until these uh, robots take over. Especially when you consider what folks try to do with technology in this story as it relates to grades. Another favorite topic of ours for sure. So let's get into it. This story um, comes from the New York Times. It's actually, an it's actually an opinion piece that appeared in the New York Times by Meredith Broussaud, who's an artificial intelligence researcher at NYU. And in her piece, she wrote about how the IB exams, the International Baccalaureate, which is of course a global program that awards a prestigious diploma to students in addition to the one they receive from their high schools. Um, it canceled its usual in-person exams, of course, because of the pandemic last spring. And instead it used an algorithm to quote unquote, predict students' grades based on an array of student information, including teacher estimated grades and past performance by students in each school. So yes, Jeff, they, they in, in lieu of the actual exams, which they couldn't give because the pandemic, the IB program reached for these algorithms to predict what students would have gotten. And in this opinion piece, Brousseau shares the story of Isabel Castaneda, who is a native Spanish speaker who spends her summers in Mexico. And she scored a five on her AP Spanish exam, as well as consistent A pluses in her Spanish classes. But the IB algorithm gave her a failing score for her IB Spanish exam. And Castaneda was not alone in receiving these uh, surprising failing grades. Uh, tens of thousands of IB students protested their computer assigned grades online and in person. And of course, grades could have been assigned based on sample materials that students had already submitted by the time school shut down. But instead, the organization decided to use an algorithm, which probably seemed like it would be the cheaper and easier solution, according to uh, Brissode. And high achieving, low income students were, spoiler alert, the ones who were hit the hardest by these algorithm grades. Now the algorithm itself um, works similar to how Netflix and Amazon figures out what you wanna watch next or purchase next. Uh, essentially, these data scientists took student information and fed it into a computer, and the computer then constructed a model that outputted individual student grades, which International Baccalaureate claimed the students would have gotten if they had taken the standardized tests that didn't happen. So, Jeff, how are you feeling about the Netflixification of grades and grading? Um, 
this is a wild story, man. What are your thoughts? No, it's completely a wild story. And I, I feel like as cool a word as techno chauvinism is, and I'm, I'm down with that, uh, our actual lexicon term for, the, for this story should have been trash or hot trash. Because, True. <laughs> because what this True. story is, is some hot trash, man. Like, honestly, when, when, when we were talking about this before the show, both of us were like, I can't believe I didn't hear about this story. Like, cause I this, cannot believe this was it. clearly going on, you know, last spring, right. And into the summer. Right. And I know neither of us are really in our immediate job context, like very deeply, uh, engaged in, in, uh, international baccalaureate. Right. But, um, right. But I went to a high school that had an IB program. I've worked with some schools over the years that, that have an IB program. And, uh, you know, there's tens of thousands of, you know, seniors across the country who are working towards their IB diploma last spring. And it's astounding to me that the actual solution they came to was to not have the kids actually take the exam, right? Like as bad as things went with AP exams last spring, at least the kids got to take the test and there was some evidence of student effort and some student work product to assess, right? Now, I'm not saying that was the best thing in the world, but it's certainly better than saying, instead of you taking the <laughs> test, we're just going to tell you how we think you were going to do based on... <laughs> like, what's the point of taking the test then if you already had this idea? Yeah, it's so like big wow. brothery, creepy kind of thing, right? It just flies in the face of the sort of basic sense of fairness and equal opportunity that is supposed to undergird any you know just system of public education. Right now, um, you know, obviously, the first of all, you know, I, IB exams are super elite the same way that AP exams are. Right. So we're you know, th this is already a slice of the educational world that is, you know, that is kind of like in a different conversation in some ways than, um, you know, than the rest of the general student population. But that said, uh, it just strikes me as so horribly unfair to the students, right? It's, it strikes me as like, so what does, what does this really mean? Like, I'm assuming their motivation was, we still wanna offer the IB diploma, which of course requires students completing a certain um, set of IB courses and earning certain grades, but also earning a certain uh, set of passing scores on IB exams in order to earn. And so they're like, well, we don't wanna rob students of the diploma, so what we're gonna do is have the computer tell us how the kid would have done. Like, it's just, you know, imagine the NBA is playing the playoffs right now. Imagine if what we said was, <laughs> let's just have an algorithm tell us, you know, based on points per game and minutes played and this and that, who was gonna win. And we'll just tell you at the end who won the championship, you know, like it, apply this to any other context in life, Manuel, and people would look at it like it's utterly insane. And that's what this is, yeah. dude. Like, it's just such a crazy story to be, man. Like, I honestly can't believe they did it. And this is an international program, right? With hundreds of thousands of kids across the globe participating. So this is wild, man. I, I was completely shocked by this story. Yeah, absolutely. As many technology related discussions as we've had this year, this is one that like it passed me up. I, I didn't realize this happened either. And this is this is just bonkers. And, you know, I, I just I just in my head, I just picture some tech person who thinks they're just so smart and they're in this meeting, this Zoom meeting, probably because it was a pandemic and had this bright idea 
of trying to work with IB to predict what students would have gotten. And I know somebody went to sleep that night thinking like they solved it, like this is gonna be the next big thing. We don't have to do the, the pen and paper tests anymore. We don't have to, like we could you know, sell this to so many universities, so many places. I, I just know behind every bad tech story is somebody who thought this was gonna be a great idea and was patting themselves on the back and bragging about it probably. And this is just, uh, terrible. Now, the, the student that was profiled in this story, it seems that the reason why she got a failing grade for Spanish, despite A pluses in her Spanish class, despite her being a native Spanish speaker, despite her spending her summers in Mexico with family, um, was the fact that one of the factors that the algorithm would consider is the school and students past performance at that school. Not the student in question, but students generally from that school over time. And her being at a school that is a marginalized, under-resourced school, she, she describes in the story saying that several of her peers also got marked down severely in ways that they shouldn't have. And it just seems that just being at that school automatically meant the algorithm is going ahead and just assuming, like all these other black and brown kids, previous to you, you're probably not so hot at tests and we're gonna go ahead and just assume that your score is gonna come out low, which is complete trash. It definitely begs the question why, you know, if that if, if that's the mindset, then why even bother like having any assessments at all if you're just gonna go ahead and just assume what a student's gonna get. It's like the worst, like the worst yeah. element of teaching. This just assumption that your kids are automatically gonna fail. Just the worst. Yeah. And the, the writer of this piece, um, Professor Brousseau, she, she, she mentions in the article, she says, quote, the pandemic makes it tempting to imagine that social institutions like school can, re can be replaced by technological solutions. They can't. And I think that's just the perfect encapsulation of the discussions we've been having this year. Technology will not save us. No matter how cool your tech is, no matter what apps your school has purchased, no matter any of that, you simply cannot replace the, the social interactions of a school and that communal feeling of teaching and learning. You just cannot replace it with technology. And this is probably the first of many, well, it's not even the first, but of this kind, probably first of many stories of someone reaching for technology to try to solve a problem during the pandemic and that technology failing miserably and failing students in this case. This is not yeah. a Netflix recommendation that's low stakes that it's like, okay, if I don't end up liking that show, I don't end up liking the show. This is like people's future that we're playing with here. And not we, the IB. I, I definitely take no ownership over this <laughs> craziness. Yeah, Just not wild. at all. This, this is super racist, man. It's like taking racism and putting it into, and classism, you know, and putting it into uh, an algorithm. And, and then having it yeah. produce racist and classist outcomes, man. I mean, it's, it's like next level messed up. And I'm so, honestly, in this world where it's hard to be shocked by anybody doing something racist or classist, this one shocked me, man. Like, how did that get through the, you know, the policy channels to be like, I know this is what we're going to do. <laughs> like, I don't know, man. Yeah. Mind blowing. Just trash. Yeah. And just quick side note, my district moved to Canvas as our learning management system this year. And I'm still learning it. Everyone's still learning it. It's a lot to it. But the speed grader aspect of it is the one point, the one part that I just want to like just really shout out to technology because that is super dope. And Jeff, I don't know if you're familiar because I don't think LAUSD 
uses Canvas, but like when students submit work through Canvas, I could just fly through the work really quickly and give feedback either based on a rubric that I create or whatever. But one of the features that I love is it lets you just record audio feedback or video feedback to students for their work. And man, I am flying through feedback because I'm a slow, slow typer. I never learned how to type correctly. And I know typer is not the word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and yes, I wrote yes. a whole dissertation without knowing how to type correctly. Don't judge me. But that speed grader and being able to give just verbal feedback right away, boom, that is super dope. It's not an algorithm. It's not predicting how my students will do. It's me utilizing technology to give them feedback as quickly as I can. And that part is super dope. So Yay for Canvas, this is not a sponsored uh, segment here. And boo for whoever the hell wrote that algorithm that they thought was gonna correctly predict students' scores on these exams. Yeah, yeah it's like it's like Minority Report for school, man. They got some some precogs in and a And remind me, Jeff, somewhere. did everything work out well in that in that movie? Did did the system work out well in that movie? Oh, man. It, it, it never works it out most, well. It never it does. The robot apocalypse not. is upon us, and Minority Report wasn't robot apocalypse, but still, similar yeah. themes. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, and I, I would scary. just like to say that although this episode is not brought to you by Canvas, if Canvas would like for this episode to be brought to you oh, by yes. Canvas, they oh, can yes. reach out to us at alloboveshow at gmail.com. Thank you very much. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, Jeff, I think we have time probably for one more story. And, um, you know, these are all been pretty, pretty sad, I would say, stories. Like, you know, the SAT and ACT and the inequities baked within trying to issue those or have students do a test optional thing, the teacher morale and teachers possibly resigning because of the craziness of this year. And of course the robot apocalypse using our grade books or tests and assessments in a very disastrous racist way. All really, really downbeat type of stories, man. Um, can we have one uplifting, humanizing, the world is going to be okay <laughs> type of story? Please Jeff. Uh, you talking to me, Manuel? <laughs> is that where you're directing this question? Because the answer—that's uh, what I was. The going answer for. is no, but but I but this one is also so crazy that you can laugh at it. So I mean, you know, maybe there's an upside. That laughter helps. <laughs> maybe there's an laughter upside helps to that. Pain. Um, yeah, man. I mean, just just this, these are special times we're living in. That's that's all I can say, Manuel. Um, but uh, our next and final lexicon term for the day for you, Manuel, is it's a lovely term. I, I know everyone will find it uh, just like delicate and beautiful. Uh, snowflake. Ah, okay. This sounds like a feel good. Now we don't get snowflakes in California. We do get we, ash. We do get snowflakes down on our cars in the, from all in the, the fires. Mountains. But the ash drops similar to snowflakes. Yes, dropping. in the mountains we get snowflakes. You know, in the in the ski resorts and whatnot. Oh, yeah, those parts yeah. of California we do. California has it all. Beaches, snow, yeah. all that. But don't come here. We're already crowded. Housing is already Yeah, expensive. plus it's but all yeah, on fire and we don't have any water. So, you know, there's that. All uh, that. <laughs> yes, but uh, this particular use of the term snowflake is referring to the masses of wonderful people out there who are, have been, with so much self-righteousness, the advocates of free speech across the country and the, and the you know, accusers of everyone on the left in their political correctness, who now are saying that uh, we need to censor 
the acclaimed 1619 project from being taught in America's schools. And chief among the snowflakes, we're gonna call out the one, the only, number 45, Donald J. Trump, and his uh, stooge in chief of the US Department of Education, uh, none other than the number one AOTA show hater, Miss Betsy DeVos. Now, yeah, she is not AOTA fam. <laughs> she is not AOTA fam. Yeah, we fam. see those thumbs down on, on YouTube, Betsy. We see, we see, we, we're watching you. Um, okay, so this story, Manuel, it, it really, we kind of put together from an amalgamation of good reporting from folks from, from a few outlets. So we want to give a shout out to Christian Spencer from The Grio and Josephine Harvey from Huffington Post. And uh, as some folks may have heard, in the opening days of September, of September uh, Donald Trump tweeted the Department of Education was investigating whether California public schools had implemented the New York Times 1619 project into their curriculum. Uh, he said, and I quote, the Department of Education is looking, in, is looking at this. If so, they will not be funded. Now, uh, that was on a um, September 1st tweet that he was sharing from an unverified account stating that California schools were using the curriculum. Um, the 1619 Project is, of course, an ongoing initiative from the New York Times Magazine created by Pulitzer Prize winner Nicole Hannah-Jones that began in August of 2019, the 400th anniversary of the beginning of slavery in America. The project aims to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of our national narrative, according to the New York Times website. Now, Trump's tweet follows um, a White House memo, which was also recently released um, at the end of August, that ordered federal agencies to discontinue racial sensitivity training. The Trump administration claimed that trainings that mention white privilege or suggest that racism is part of the nation's foundation undercut the government's core values. All agencies were directed to cancel any training related to white privilege or critical race theory. This two-page memo was put out by Office of Management and Budget, uh, Management and Budget Director uh, Russell Voigt, um, and who said that the president has directed me to ensure that the federal agencies cease and desist from using taxpayer dollars to fund these divisive, un-American propaganda training sessions. Now, Manuel, uh, I'm just gonna take a deep breath here and have like a woo-saw moment while I, while I let you uh, respond to these disgusting, bigoted, racist, jerk-faced people that we need to talk about here for a minute. So do your thing, I'm just gonna take some, some deep breaths. Uh, you do that, Jeff. Jerk face. Wow. Those I'm, are you know, I'm trying to keep it PG-13 here for the AOTA family audience. <laughs> I got some other words, okay? I got some other words. We can talk about sure. it uh, offline. Yeah, well, I just want to point out that you promised that our fourth story would be a heartfelt, warm, humanizing story. I'm pretty sure you promised that. Our, our listeners or viewers could rewind, rewind and see where you promised that. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I'm dismayed that we almost made it through an episode without having to reference this dumpster fire um, in the White House. We almost made it through, but you know, it's just, how can you not talk about this? Now, obviously like, you know, as a history teacher, there's so many times in history where there's some government 
some leadership somewhere that accuses some segment of society or some ideas in society of being unpatriotic. And I don't know, Jeff, but I'm pretty sure um, certain places in history have burned books and certain curriculums because they were quote unquote unpatriotic. And I think, spoiler alert, all those places ended up being terribly fascist, autocratic, undemocratic. Yep. So it's, um, this reminds me of that, obviously. I mean, would you be surprised if a collection of Trump supporters somewhere got a whole bunch of copies of the 1619 Project and literally burned it to make a point? Like, I wouldn't be surprised by that at this point. And the whole history repeating itself thing is, it's almost become cliche. And as a history teacher, I mean, I gotta be honest, it's similar to the discussion we had on a passing period a little while ago. Now, I'm not even gonna address like whether or not the 1619 Project belongs in schools. Like if you're listening to this, you already know that it's it's dope work that belongs in schools. There's no question about that. Um, but going back to something that we discussed in the passing period not too long ago, I'm worried, like I'm honestly worried because being a teacher, it's already stressful enough, right? It's stressful enough, period, but especially right now with distance learning or hybrid learning, pandemic teaching, whatever you're doing, it's already difficult. And to know that more than ever before, you have folks on the other side of those screens hearing what you are teaching, seeing what you're teaching, watching over their kids' shoulders, I'm just, I'm, I'm honestly concerned about how many folks are hearing the president, seeing his tweets, believing the garbage that's coming out of his mouth and lurking in their, you know, in the kitchens and living rooms where their students are working, waiting to see if that teacher says anything that's un-American or if that teacher uses any curriculum that they feel is racist or making America look bad. I can't imagine how many emails and calls and public comments have been made across the nation, uh, various districts and various schools of parents trying to complain about the content that their kid is getting from their teacher. Um, and those complaints stemming from these discussions, these, these, this, this nonsense that's been coming from the White House. Folks have been almost deputized to be on alert for quote unquote un-American stuff from these so-called liberal, crazy, wacko teachers. And it's just amazing that we're here. And it shouldn't be amazing. I think you said a couple stories ago, this episode, like shouldn't be shocked by anything at this point, but this is still, it's still shocking. It's just sad. It's terribly sad. Um, yeah, I, I, all I could say for all the teachers out there and all the educators out there, just have a mental picture in mind for when a parent or somebody complains about something that they overheard from your class. I know for myself, now there are folks that very bravely and courageously don't hold back when teaching the honest history of America and who are totally perfectly fine with whatever fire may come from administrators, from parents, from whatever. I, however, don't have the mental capacity right now, the emotional capacity, I should say, to fight those fights. Like, I don't want it. I'm not avoiding anything in my teaching. Of course, my teaching is just as you know liberating as it's always been, as, as, as I've always tried to make it. But I just really don't want to bother with the angry emails or um, a snippet of my class ending up on some right-wing podcast and folks trying to come at me. I get enough of that for being affiliated with the work on the Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum, which is work that I'm very proud of. And I definitely expect at some point 
for the president to tweet about that once that <laughs> curriculum is made official yeah, man. and approved you, by the State Board of Education. You're already on the list, man. You're already a, That's coming, you're already man. a pinko commie you know, c collaborator. That's what you <laughs> Man, if you could see some of the emails I've gotten uh, as just for this ethics studies work. Rusted, so you are already man. on the FBI list, man. So so I say already. since you're there, enjoy the ride, man. <laughs> like like I guess so, man. Yes. I guess. Exactly. I mean it's just uh damn it, man. You just <sighs> Yeah. I don't the backlash to having a black president. This is this is all yeah. part of that backlash, yeah. and the president wasn't even a like radical progressive president, just a middle of the road, moderate president. And the fact that he was half black, we have this backlash that has been going on for years, and it seems to only be getting worse. And it's just so heartbreaking. It begs the question. Will I ever have a moment in my life, in my future, where I can look at America and feel that America has truly reconciled with its past and truly acknowledged the horrors of its past? And I, that ain't gonna happen in my lifetime. And that's just, that's sad. Honestly, it's, it's sad. It like breaks my heart. It's just sad. Yeah, I, I hear you, man. It is, there's no way to look at this story and not just be like, wow. This is, this is a scary place that we've arrived at, and it is sad to, to be confronted with the harsh reality that this is where we are. Um, and at the same time, I hope, and I, your point I totally appreciate, man, and I, and I, you know, the kind of vulnerability of teachers who are broadcasting themselves into the homes of hundreds of kids every day, right, um, or dozens of kids at least every day, uh, is you know, is something to consider that I think, you know, is, is just a new dynamic in what the profession is, right? And so the ability for your words to be recorded, taken out of context, used and sort of weaponized against you is just totally different than it was before. And that's a reality. I also think this is a moment, man, like we are on a scary precipice here uh, from whatever, you know, weak version of democracy we currently have, uh, leaning towards something that is just, in my view, you know, objectively fascist and uh, and the threat that that poses and the role that education, in, in my view, has to play in challenging that kind of authoritarianism and in preserving the freedom of a democratic society that is a place that can challenge itself, right? That is a citizenry who is educated with truth and not just pure propaganda and lies that can say, you know what, we haven't lived up to what we say our ideals are. That can say, you know what, we have had serious problems with oppression and it looks like this and it manifests today in these kinds of ways and we want to make the world a better place, right? Like that's fundamentally the business that we're in, in school, is like developing young people so that they can go out and make the world a better place, right? Like that's what we do, that's our work. And, you know, for us to back away from that now in this moment, I think it's, it's critical that we do not. And I know I'm saying that from sort of the, the luxurious position of not being a teacher right now, not having to have it be my face that gets plastered on some crazy right wing blog or whatever. Right. So I hear that. Um, and I'm not mad at teachers who make the decision they think is, you know, is in their best interest right now. Um, but I will say I hope that what this represents is not only a call to arms for our profession, teachers, administrators, district officials, school board members, 
anyone who cares about freedom and democracy and you know equality in our society um, to push back against this kind of just fascist censorship to say, you know what, the 1619 Project is Pulitzer Prize winning journalism. That is the highest prize that we give to that type of writing, essentially, right? Um, so for them to turn around and say that this excellent piece of journalism that is coming out of one of the most noteworthy you know, publications in our nation, right? That is one of the most scrutinized and vetted and funded and researched and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Kinds of publications in our country. To say that it's un-American because it is naming truths about our past is just mm -hmm. fundamentally at odds with what I think that, you know, the nature of education should be about. And I think this, this is a moment, this is a call to arms for us, and I hope that educators will, will rally behind this cause. Yeah, um, you know, I, I hope you're right. I definitely hope you're right. Um, it, it's unfortunate that this happens to be happening at a time when so much else is happening in the life of teachers and the world of, of education with pandemic and all that. And of course, you know, it's no coincidence that this is also happening as an election approaches. And these, these are all what used to be dog whistles, but are now just straight up bullhorns from, from the president for sure. Um, you know, but hopefully, hopefully, um, teachers do teachers and educators and district leaders and school board members and, and everybody does does uh, rally together and say no this is not this is not what this what what we're gonna we're gonna allow to happen um, yeah all those folks who are like oh politics doesn't belong in the classroom now's your time to step up and like prove that when by telling the president you're you know the person that you voted for, we know about a third of teachers um, voted for this president to say like, hey, stay out of our classrooms because, you know, that's 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 not welcome here, that fascism, that authoritarianism, that that propaganda. All right, folks, that about does it for today's Do Now segment. Um, we had a, a lot going on in that in that segment, a lot of stories out there. And we just want to remind y'all to um, take care of y'all mentals. All right. We we will be OK because our students remind us every day that the youth, the youth have this covered. We'll be all right. All right, folks, up next is our class dismissed where we take a look at folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks for being a big supporter of all the above. We really appreciate it and we need your help. All you need to do is go to aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There, you can chip in via Venmo, via Cash App, or most importantly, you can go to our Anchor page and subscribe there. Everything you can do to help us helps us put together incredible content here on All the Above and make sure you're getting the best each and every week. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to give shout outs for folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Jeff, who we got today? Well, man, well, today we want to give a just, I think, a heartfelt uh, happy trails to, uh, you know, a person who is a noteworthy figure um, in our profession and in the kind of national and international conversation about school and education and what schools should be. Um, who passed away recently, that being uh, the, the great uh, Ken Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson. 
And for those who perhaps aren't familiar, uh, Ken Robinson um, was a New York Times bestselling author. He led uh, national and international projects on creative and cultural education across the world. Um, he was a major proponent of unlocking and igniting the creative energy of people and of organizations. And uh, Ken Robinson was, is still the most watched speaker in TED's history. Um, his 2006 TED Talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity, has been viewed nearly 70 million times and see, has been seen by an estimated 380 million people across 160 countries across the world. Um, so I know for many uh, progressive educators out there, many folks who, you know, who are like-minded and thinking that creativity is something we have uh, kind of beaten out of the, the process and, and machinations of school um, and that we need to prioritize in a different way than, than I think a lot of our structures currently allow us to. He was a, a major inspiration and um, someone who I think uh, will, will certainly be missed. So we wanna just say, uh, Sir Ken Robinson, we hear you, we see you and uh, rest in peace. Happy trails indeed. Rest in peace, Sir Ken Robinson. All right, folks, that about does it for this episode of All of the Above. You'll definitely want to go ahead and hit that follow and subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be at you in one week with a passing period for the podcast listeners at least, and um, in two weeks with a brand new full episode in which we'll be taking a look at science classes and anti-racism. Um, you don't want to miss that. All right. So stay tuned, folks. We'll check you next time.